0: Now this week um, the Gallup polling organization did their annual survey of mental health and I didn't actually look at the methodology but I assumed they call or contact certain representative sample of Americans and they ask them how they're doing mentally how is your mental health this year and it's pretty much the same year to year Uh, it never really drops below eighty percent of people who say that their mental health is either good or excellent Usually, about eighty percent of people feel their mental health is good or excellent but this year they noted a twelve percent drop across the board in self-reported mental health Um, a twelve-point reduction in those who say they are doing good or excellent mentally and the interesting thing was there was no real demographic factor that separated one group of Americans from another. In other words, pretty much across the board, across you know, generational, racial, socioeconomic, you name it, whatever demographic factor you want to look at, everybody's mental health took a hit this year. And that's pretty reasonable. I mean, there's been a, quite a few things going on that would cause a person's outlook to be affected. you, know, you got a global pandemic and government-mandated isolation, so you can't be around people. you got the constant dread in the back of your mind that you're going to get the coronavirus and die. There's economic fallout and people without jobs. You know, the unemployment rate keeps going down, but it's because people have stopped looking for work. So lots of that going on, not knowing what 2021 is going to be like. Uh, can't go see your grandparents on Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's like, you know, maybe you're like me and all these other Americans that at some point this year, these factors got the better of you and you got discouraged or depressed. And in fact, because that came out this week and was conducted over the past several weeks, uh, maybe you are discouraged or depressed right now. And all this talk about Christmas being a season of joy seems pretty foreign to you. And if that's you, I just kind of want to speak directly to you this morning uh, in the fog of discouragement that there is a way out, that there's actually a, a pretty sure way to get out of that funk and to find deep and meaningful joy. It comes to us right out of this passage we read a few minutes ago. And we're going to look at it in depth here in a second. But the idea is basically this, that true joy is found when we recognize and receive what God has done for us in Christ. True joy is found when we recognize and receive what God has done for us in Christ. And joy is this elusive concept. Maybe you've experienced this where you try to define joy. Maybe even a preacher puts it to you. Hey, what's joy? And you know that happiness is not joy, that there's something else. This is a trick question. But happiness is basically the closest we can get in our minds we know it's it's like happiness this feeling of warmth and happiness within the satisfaction deep-seated joy but we we can't really put our finger on it and that's because joy isn't really an emotion Uh, it's something deeper than that it's not something we can manufacture or produce even though people try to do it you you watch the funny movie hoping that's gonna improve your state of mind but afterwards you have just Watched a funny movie and you're back to your old life again. You know, it doesn't work. You can't produce it. You can't get to it. People try to find it in pursuing chemical pleasures. Uh, They tune into the internet and surf every webpage they can find. Nothing can produce joy. That's because joy is deeper than the emotional sphere. Joy is spiritual. And true joy, therefore, comes from the one who is spirit, God, who has. Shown himself to us in the person of Jesus, and so this morning I want us to work through this passage, kind of keeping in the back of our mind this frame, that maybe you're not discouraged today, but maybe you're going to meet somebody this week who is, and you're going to have the opportunity to point them towards the source of true joy, which is found when a person recognizes and receives what God has done for them in Christ. So let's jump back in here to Luke chapter one, and I really the the introduction, the narrative part where Mary shows up at Elizabeth's house is cool. And if you got your discipleship guide on the way in, I've got a question in there that maybe will help you think about the significance of that moment when they see each other face to face. But I kind of just want to focus in on Mary's song. And so uh, we'll, we'll read this song again, and then we'll take it bit by bit. In verse 46, Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave, For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. I kind of want to just stop right here uh, and kind of take this piece on its own. This is what I'm calling Mary recognizing God's work for her in Christ. And up to this point in Luke's gospel, he's already drawn our attention to joy a couple of times. He told uh, told us that when Zechariah encountered Gabriel in the temple, you remember this a couple weeks ago, that when John was born, there would be great joy and rejoicing over his birth. In chapter 2, Luke's going to tell us that these shepherds are on the hillside the night of Jesus' birth, and an angel appears to them and says that, hey, we bring good news of great joy for all the people. In the little narrative introduction that Mike read for us earlier, Elizabeth tells Mary that when Mary walked into the room, the baby within her leaped for joy. And then here in verse 47, Mary says, My soul rejoices in God my Savior. Uh, Daryl Block, one of the commentators I've been leaning on for this series, he says that one of the most beautiful things about Luke's infancy narratives, the, the stories about Jesus' birth, is that God brings joy To all kinds of different people at the arrival of Jesus. The aged priest and his barren wife, joy. To the shepherds on the hillside, joy. And to Mary, joy. She rejoices in God our Savior. And that's where we begin this morning as we think about getting out of the fog of discouragement or depression or however you want to put it. You remember John last week in his sermon. He told us that it was kind of an interesting thing that Gabriel came to Mary. And you, know, you might expect that for a priest who's going to be the father of a great prophet. But you don't really expect that for this first century Palestinian teenage peasant girl. That's not the type of person that you'd expect God to have a special interest in. I mean, she was of the Jewish peasant class and pretty much undistinguished from the women of the ancient world. Uh, he said that her day would have been spent with her mom in the kitchen, maybe doing laundry or carrying water on her head from the well. You know, her life was difficult, challenging her life expectancy was short if she actually survived the childbearing process for this baby boy uh, she might live to be 50 or 60 but the odds were against her was likely that she would die but then in this moment in this life of difficulty challenging circumstances uh, now pregnant with a child and nobody knows who the dad is she's able to rejoice in God This little girl, insignificant, undistinguished in the ancient world, now rejoices in God. And it's all rooted in what Elizabeth says to her. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, I know that it's not appropriate for parents to derive their sense of self-worth from their children. And it's a dangerous thing because our children always embarrass us when they're on the front row and can't hold still and you know it's like you're the preacher's kid can you just hold it together for 45 minutes but in the ancient world a woman's standing was tied to how great her son was uh if you were going to have a great uh, if you were going to be called great it would be because of the things that your son had done and when Elizabeth sees Mary she knows that here it is how who what what is this that I should be blessed to receive the mother of my lord Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She knows that Mary is great because of this child she's carrying. So all of Mary's greatness, all of her blessing that she's received from God, the reason for her rejoicing is because the God of heaven, exalted above all things, has somehow found it in His perfect plan to take a special interest in an unimportant person. Insignificant. I think John said, you know, we wouldn't have known about her if it weren't for these events or something like that. We wouldn't have known about her, her, her childhood home if it weren't for this story. It was totally, in- oh, that was Nazareth, wasn't it? We wouldn't have known about Nazareth if it weren't for Jesus. So that's what's going on. And so when, when Mary starts to think about this, when Elizabeth says, bless you among women, is the fruit of your womb, Mary is just overwhelmed, overcome with emotion. Uh, the English doesn't really capture it. Maybe the Latin does. The Magnificat. Right, that just sounds important and significant. The first word of the Latin Vulgate translation of this passage is what we call magnify. So, magnificat, I magnify the Lord and my soul rejoices in God my Savior. She just absolutely belts out a song of praise. And why is it? You can look with me again. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For, that's the reason for her rejoicing. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Listen, don't miss this. The whole reason Mary's rejoicing is precisely because she was so insignificant, and yet God had done something so great for her. It's totally mismatched with the way you'd think the normal world would work. Of course you do good things for great people. You give them the credit they are due. But Mary represents that inversion that God loves to display. That He pours out His mercy and grace on the least deserving. And that's what she understands. That God has seen her in her humble estate and because of His work in her life all generations are gonna call her blessed. You see Mary knew that elusive thing of joy. And not just any joy. Most of the time in the New Testament, the word we get joy from comes from the Greek word kara. But the word here is actually longer and more difficult to pronounce, and so you'll have to forgive me for not saying it out loud. But uh, this is a different kind of joy, and it's only found in ancient Christian literature, the New Testament and the other writings of the early church. And even there, it's it's pretty rare. It's a kind of joy that's not just an internal feeling, But it actually should probably be translated to be exceedingly joyful or overjoyed. You know, that exceedingly abundantly joyful. And that's what Mary experienced. She has this overwhelming automatic response towards what God has done for her in granting her this child. It's not just the internal sense of satisfaction. It moves beyond that. Her whole body gets into it. You can almost imagine this teenage girl jumping up, and shouting, raising her hands, praising God. You know, make us uncomfortable if she was down here on the front row doing it. But that's what she does. Her whole body gets caught up in her joy. It, you know this kind of joy. It's the kind of joy you, you experience when you get giddy. Maybe you get a good piece of news and you can't help but giggle. You're just like bouncing all around the wall. People see you. They're like, what is wrong with you? And you're like, I'm just, I just got the best piece of news you ever heard. It's the kind of joy... That leads you to smile so big and for so long, involuntarily, that after the fact, your face muscles hurt. Y- have you known joy and happiness like that? I see you shaking your head again. Now, y'all were at a wedding last weekend. I bet you had that. Because you can experience that overwhelming joy in the world. At a wedding of someone you love, at the birth of a child, you get to hold your grandchild for the first time. Wow, what joy, smiling on your face. You know you know this, I, I get it when I look up here at this stage and I think about what God has done for our church. I'm overwhelmed with joy. And that's what happened to Mary. She was overcome, overwhelmed, whole body caught up in re- rejoicing and exalting God. And because of that, I think our lack of joy comes from not doing what she did. She recognized that God had shown mercy to her in her humble estate. And her automatic response was a joy that moved her whole body into action. And so if we're not experiencing joy, I wonder if something hasn't taken root in us the way it had in her. You know, we look back on the the same cause of her joy, the birth of this baby boy. And forgive me for saying this, because it's probably an exaggeration. But Christmas can almost just seem like a routine kind of thing. Just passe. I mean, every year since you were born, you've been caught up in the celebration of Christ's birth. So every year you've sang the songs, you've heard the stories and sermons, and oh yeah, 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 I know that one, I know the, that story, I know that song. Uh, even singing What Child Is This? There, man, there's some powerful verses in that that I just, you know, had not really ever process the way I was able to this morning I think that's probably the problem for most of us that if we can't find joy in recognizing what God has done for us in Christ he's not the problem we are we need to remember what Mary does rejoice as she did and scriptures tell us that even though we're not first-century Palestinian peasants uh, we were pretty much poor Insignificant undistinguished among the great things in the universe. In fact, the Bible says we are rebels by nature and alienated from God for our sin, and apart from any gracious work from him toward us, we're bound for sure and certain judgment. And we'll stand before Him, the lights will be brighter than this, shining in our eyes. We'll hear the Lord say, "Hey, have you lived your life, Brad Mills And I 'll give an account for." every deed I've done, every careless word I've spoken, everything that God commanded and I didn't do. That's what the Bible says. That That's each of us. And yet we turn the page to Galatians 4, and in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, us, so that in Him we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. That is the gospel. That apart from anything you or I could ever have done, in fact, despite everything you and I had done, God saw us in our humble estate, our insignificance, our poverty, and richly blessed us in Christ. And so I believe 100% that if a person would recognize what God has done for them in Jesus, they'd be caught up in the same joyful, ecstatic celebration that Mary demonstrated in Elizabeth's house. Now, it's easy to get disoriented. I want to be clear. I was there this year at various points, disoriented by all the chaos around us, getting the fog and the funk of discouragement and depression. But the surest way to find your way out of it is to come back here, to repeat the same old story again to come back to the Christmas message and remind yourself. Because there there are no circumstances, no diseases, no scenarios in the world that overshadow the significance of what God has done for us in Jesus. That's why Paul could write to the Philippians from a jail cell, Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord, Always, and again I say rejoice. Or James could write to his Jewish Christian friends, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Or why Peter could say in First Peter 1, To rejoice, though now, if for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to hear. We get real practical. We're all discouraged by the things going on in our world. We're worried for our kids and our grandkids. What are the long-term effects going to be of them missing a year of school like they've missed? What's going to happen to their little fragile psyches that for this important part of their developmental life, all they saw were adults in masks? What's going to be the result of that thing? What's going to happen to our political environment Is God going to send revival and bring us back from the brink, or is He going to turn us over to ourselves and let us have what we want? What's going to happen? But you come back to this, that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. That even if it's necessary that the next 60 years of my life, which in God's timeline are just the tiniest fraction of, of a drop in the bucket. They're not even actually liquid water our lives. They're vapors. They're just fog that comes up off the river when the weather changes. That's all we are. And so if for a little season of life I have to live through a trial, I know where I'm going. I know my destination, that I am going to see my God face to face. And so I'm going to rejoice in that, that there's nothing that happens here that can take that away from me. And so recognize what God has done for us in Christ And you will find a joy that sustains you through life's most difficult storms and hardest challenges. But then it goes beyond recognizing what God's done to receiving what God's done. And I think we see this in the second half. In verse 50, we pick it up. His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He's done mighty deeds with His arm. He's scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He's given help to Israel, His servant, and in remembrance of His mercy, just as He had spoke to our fathers, to Abram and his descendants forever. You know, I love this second half because if it weren't for the second half of the song, I could imagine a person, and maybe there's, maybe you're thinking this, I'm like, yeah, Brad, it's great, That God did that for Mary. It's amazing that this whole virginal conception and the miraculous birth of Jesus, that is amazing. And if it had happened to me, if I were in her shoes, of course, I'd be rejoicing and shouting. Um, But look at my life. My life is totally different than hers. He hasn't blessed me like that. He's left me like this. But this second half of the song extends the blessing of God beyond Mary's personal experience. And she says, His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. See, Mary's personal experience isn't some out-of-the-ordinary thing for God. Like, just once, out of the entire vastness of God's mercy towards creation... He decided to do things differently and he's going to show mercy to the undeserving. Now, God specializes in that. The kind of transformation that he worked in Mary's life from her humble estate to blessed are thou among women is the kind of transformation he loves to work in everyone who fear him. See, what God is doing in Mary's life is not a one-time bonus act of grace towards somebody. But it is the premier act of grace which makes all that other stuff that we just got finished talking about possible. That in sending his son Jesus through Mary, he was going to extend his mercy and grace to everybody who would come to Christ in faith. And in doing so, he was going to turn the whole value system of the world on its head. It's like what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Blessed are who? Who? the poor in spirit. This is the way Jesus operates, blessing those who don't deserve it, who the world would look down upon, the peasants spiritually and physically. Jesus delights in blessing them. And Mary's song, especially here in the second half when she starts talking about God's mighty arm and the sin in the way, the rich empty-handed and the uh, the fool without anything to eat, this is really taken right out of the pages of the Old Testament, uh, both in the Psalms and in the Prophets. And if you like the Old Testament like I do, you know you it's like I don't she's not really quoting very much from the Old Testament, but she's just so saturated with God's word that when she turns to a phrase to use to praise God, her dictionary is the Old Testament. And, and that's a worthy goal for each of us. But whether we're talking about David in the Psalms or God's people living under oppression and in exile. This language of the Old Testament is rooted in an unshakable belief they had that whatever present circumstances they were facing, and you think about some of those circumstances, you know, David, a man after God's own heart, who had done nothing but faithfully serve the Lord's anointed in Saul, and yet had twice a a spear thrown at him so that Saul could pin him against the wall. You know, David did nothing to deserve that. He was just trying to be faithful to the thing that God had called him to. And yet everywhere he turned, Saul was at his heels. And so David cried out to God, Where are you, Lord? You said you were going to raise me up and establish me on the throne, but it feels like you've kind of forgotten about me and abandoned me. Show up again. Or Israel in exile. How long, O Lord, until you remember your promise and you come through on the faithful covenant you you made with us? When are you going to reexert yourself and redeem us? From our slavery. See, all this language of the Old Testament is rooted, let me get back to this, in the fact that whatever their present circumstances, they knew that that was not God's final word. That he had something better in store for them. And just like he had remembered them and heard their cry when they were in Egypt and then extended his mighty arm and led them out and conquered Pharaoh, so too again in the future he was going to act that way again. He was going to act just as he had done in a new exodus to establish a new covenant with his people and to establish them before him forever. And according to Mary, the birth of Jesus was God coming through, proving himself to be faithful to the covenant promises he had made. I mean, she she names a couple of them. She said, to Abraham and his offspring forever. If you go back to Genesis 15 and 17, you see these promises that God made to Abraham. That God would bless him, multiply his offspring. In Genesis 17, he says, I will be God to you and to your offspring forever, from generation to generation. And so Mary says that this baby boy that's about to be born is God's exclamation point on the terms of the covenant. Yeah, I promised to come through and here I am. I am doing it right now. And we know this is the case because all their hopes and longings had been set on some pretty interesting things. You know the, the coming of the Spirit, like what we've been talking about on Wednesday night, was one of their great hopes that God was going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. But I like those things that Isaiah said. Isaiah fifty-seven or 51, 11. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Or Isaiah 61, 7. See, so it's the same kind of event. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. See, and the, the thing I want you to hear, say it again, that Mary's particular experience of God's blessing that caught her up and whole body expression of joy. And the longing of ancient Israel for their coming Messiah who would grant to them everlasting joy is available today to everyone who fears Him. to generation to generation in Jesus. It's not squirreled away in some ancient book written in a language you can't understand. It's not sequestered in historical events that we can ponder at Christmas time and just think, man, isn't that great that God gave joy to people back then? But it's an everlasting joy that's available to each and every one of us, everybody who looks to Jesus for it. And we know this is the case because after this baby was born and grew up and began to teach his people with authority, he had a lot to say about joy. He told his disciples in John 15, as he was preparing them for his departure, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So, listen, I'm talking about joy and you may feel that I'm belaboring the point and beating the dead horse. But joy is not something that is elusive. It's not something that God promises, hey, there's some joy out there if you just look hard enough. If you'll just try if you just search. Jesus actually gave the direct roadmap to having fullness of joy. I've told you these things so that your joy may be full. That's the purpose of Jesus' teaching to show us the pathway to joy. He also said the next chapter over, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. He's talking particularly about when he's crucified and buried for three days. You guys are going to experience some deep sorrow. But the world will rejoice. It's obvious because the world is against Jesus, and it seems the world has won. So they're going to rejoice, you guys are going to weep. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Some of y'all know deeply what that means. Knox was born without an epidural, and uh, my wife is the most kind-hearted woman. And even now, she's squinting her eyes at me, wondering where I'm going. <laughs> I'm telling you, childbirth will do a work on a woman. All right, changes her in all kinds of ways. So you understand what he means when she has sorrow because her hour has come. But here's the deal: when she's delivered the baby. She no longer has the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I'll see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy away from you. That's one you ought to put on a bumper sticker on your mirror or something. You need to remember that. No one will take your joy from you. In that day you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Asking you will receive that your joy may be full. So listen, Jesus is not just promising pie in the sky when you die, joy everlasting in heaven. He has given you a clear road map to living every day in the fullness of joy. And it's found in Him. Receiving all that He promises to give us from God in Him. That's why he could say, or Paul could say in Galatians 5, that when the Holy Spirit comes, when he takes up residence within us, and then when we walk with him, we start to experience the fruit that only he can produce love. We love love. Love is good. Joy. Joy should be the defining characteristic of our life in Christ. We should have this joy that overwhelms us when we recognize and receive. What God has done for us in Christ. And so at this Christmas season, you know, we, we do this Luke 1 and 2 thing. Our kids are learning Luke 1 and 2. And we read the stories of ancient joy. Joy shown to barren and aged priests and his wife. To shepherds on the hillside. To Mary. The whole world even in these Christmas narratives. But the better promise is that joy is available for us that you can personally experience true joy by recognizing and receiving God's work for you in Christ. You can know an overwhelming sense of joy. There are a couple of points I look back over the year. When I wish somebody had took me by the shoulders and looked me in the face... And said, Brad, where's your joy? Where is your joy? Have you forgotten all that God has done for you in Jesus, that you're letting a season of life make you miserable? And so I'll ask you, are you experiencing fullness of joy this morning? Do you know the kind of joy that Mary had? Whole body caught up when she thought about what God had done for her. Are you moved by the fact that Jesus lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death on the cross for you and then was raised victorious over the grave? Does that do something to you? Does that overwhelm you with a sense of joy? Now, Our fellow Americans... They're looking for that. They escape into Netflix and Disney Plus, pursue all kinds of substances that they think is going to give them a momentary relief. But it never does. And so don't be like them. Don't do the things they do looking for the same results. You've been bought by the blood of Jesus. You've been given His Spirit, the fullness of God to dwell within you every day. You have an eternal home in heaven with God. Nothing can take that away from you. And so when life presses in, when the worries and uncertainties of the future cause you to wonder what on earth is going on, come back and recognize what God has already done for you in Jesus. But here's the thing. It's one thing to recognize it and say, oh yeah, it's great that God has done that. But it really is a whole different thing to receive it to take possession of it and to make it your own. I think a lot of Christians suffer from this. They know that God has done great things, but they have yet to internalize that and believe that God has done it for them. And so today, I just want to invite you to consider whether or not you have received all that God has promised to do for you in Jesus. I mean, maybe you can remember a day when a preacher stood on a stage or on a platform somewhere and told you the gospel message that you were a sinner but that God had sent His own Son to die for your sins and to give you eternal life. And you raised your hand and you walked down the aisle and you believed it and you've lived that way ever since. But maybe you can't think of a day when that was. You don't have a moment in your life that really serves as that turning point, the line in the sand where you crossed over onto God's side. If that's you, today should be the day that you make a line in the sand and you cross over and you choose to live your life for Jesus. We often make excuses for that. I know I made a lot of excuses growing up thinking that I knew Jesus and that I was a great Christian kid. Um, I thought I knew all the right answers to the Sunday school lesson questions. You know, Jesus is usually a good one if you're, if you're lost. And I I thought I had it down. My life was pretty good, uh, indistinguishable from my Christian friends. um, And so I thought I was all right. But I didn't know joy. I was absolutely miserable. I was faking my way, hoping that nobody figured out that I was an imposter. Hoping that I could somehow live up to my parents' expectations and to my youth pastor's expectations. And that I guess, in the back of my mind, I thought maybe I could even live up to God's expectations. But that night, I realized my humble estate, how poor I was, how impoverished, how nothing I ever could do would earn my way to God. But that in his son Jesus, he was glad to take people with empty hands and fill them up with mercy and grace. He was glad to come to people with empty bellies and satisfy their desire for righteousness. That that is what he operates in. And so this morning, you don't know joy. You're miserable. You've been faking your way. Maybe today is the day that God is trying to give you every blessing that is yours by faith in Christ. Don't leave the building hoping that maybe when this pandemic thing clears up, your headspace will get better. Get right with God. I'd love to talk to you about that. We'll have prayer team members in the fellowship hall in just a second. If you need to pray with somebody, I'd love to pray with you. They'd love to pray with you. If you want to make that next step of following Jesus, you know I'm here for you. And so, church, I I remind you then that Advent is a season to rejoice. Not because we look forward to the day when God's long-promised Messiah will come. But we rejoice in knowing that He has come. And he has already begun his work of transforming the world and he begins with us. Will you pray with me?